0: Hey, good morning, and welcome to Valley Lights Church. This is online. My name is Bruce, I'm the lead pastor here, and I am so glad that you've joined us today. This is really a big highlight for us because we get to celebrate Easter for the second time as a church. Uh, we're relatively new, we're a new church in town, and uh, uh, we got started in the middle of 2020 of all the craziness during that year. And uh, a team of eight other adults joined my wife and I on this new adventure. And by God's grace, our church has been growing. And we celebrated Easter for the first time last year in, outside in a local park. We had to be outside, and that was before we found a regular indoor meeting space. But here's a photo of us celebrating Easter last year. It was a beautiful day. Southern California is reliably beautiful. <laughs> then we were able to find some indoor space in a hotel <clears throat> the Embassy Suites in Valencia here's a photo of that and uh, we were able to move to a place that I really wanted to be after that it's the Rio Norte Junior High School a beautiful facility and so we moved in there you can see a photo of that and we couldn't be there for very long though so we had to move again and we are now in this location that you see here um, another great spot in Santa Clarita California and I'm glad that you found us whether you're listening or watching or joining us in person. I'm really excited. So have you ever thought, why do Christians get so worked up about Easter anyway? (laughs) You know, Easter is a holiday, holiday recognized on our calendars. It shows up on Google Calendar and all over the place. But isn't that getting a little outdated? You know, at a certain point, shouldn't we like maybe just move on and let Easter become a tradition of the past, because after all, there's, I mean, I know there's all kinds of other events and programs going on this weekend that compete with Easter or maybe become a bigger priority to to people. Nowadays, you don't have to really go very far before hearing shots fired at organized religion. Some of the criticism is that religion is is too narrow-minded, you know, just... Religious people aren't open to different viewpoints, or it's just too traditional. You know, some traditions are cute, you know, we can keep some things on the calendar, but overall, I think we need to progress and modernize as a society. Or another shot fired is that religion is too controlling. Actually, it was Karl Marx who said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Meaning, it's just it's like a drug that fogs up the mind so that you can control people how to live. I've even heard people say things like, of all of the problems in the world come from organized religion. Here's an example. This is a pretty scathing statement from an article. The article is called, The Problem with Faith, 11 Ways that Religion is Destroying Humanity. Here's, here's the a quote. This author says, It's time to let go and rise above the outdated and cruel exploits of our past that we inherited from our ancestors. We have grown. It's time that our world's religions face the tragic horrors of their past and make honest progression toward love and kindness for all humanity. Interesting thought. Maybe you have thought some of those things yourself. Or maybe you know people who have expressed ideas like that, but you're not really sure how to respond. It would appear that negativity toward religion is gaining momentum. Since the 1970s, Gallup has been doing polls, a bunch of polls of uh, Americans' confidence in various institutions, uh, such as, you know, how confident are Americans in the presidency or in banks, uh, news outlets, public schools, the criminal justice system, and So they studied uh, 15 big institutions in American life. And when they started back in the 70s, Americans had greater confidence in church or organized religion than any other institution. And look at this graph. You can see, if you look at this line graph, from the 70s all the way through 2019, which is where they they, uh, did this study, you can see a downward trend. So according to this poll, now, only, only 36% of Americans have confidence in the church or organized religion. Oh, my. <laughs> At any point in your life, if you have ever been skeptical about Jesus, or about Christians, or about Christianity, you're not alone. If you feel suspicious about religion, or about what the Christians in your life stand for, others have had that, those same suspicions. Early in my spiritual journey, I, I wrestled with my own doubts. Like, how do I know for sure that this thing is real and legitimate? I grew up being taken to church, and at a certain point, my faith had to become my own, but I wrestled for a, for a period of time. If you hold to Christianity, does that put you in the minority now? You know, we who are Christ followers, are we crazy to be clinging to Christianity still? Are we irrelevant and old-fashioned for having faith in Jesus? Well, as you know, today is Easter Sunday, and today we celebrate, in my view, the most important historical event in all of human history. And in recognition of that event, we're starting a new multi-week message series called The Difference. We're exploring, we're going to explore the impact that the Christian movement has had, and really the undeniable impact that it's had on our world. So, if you're hoping that the Christian worldview truly does hold water, I've got some good news for you. Because Christianity is not under attack for the first time. Various people and governments throughout history have tried to shut down Christianity, censor the Bible, and lock up Christians. Despite large organized efforts, it hasn't been stamped out yet. This is not the first time that shots have been fired at Christianity. Also, Christianity is not held by just a few people. Worldwide, it's really no small number of people who believe in Jesus. Pew Research Center, they did a worldwide study on this topic in 2015. And look at this graph. At that time, there was an estimated 7.3 billion people living on the planet, and they determined that uh, 2.3 billion nearly one-third of the population was recognized as Christian. Now, that is a lot of people. Even if the numbers are skewed a little high, that's, with a generous margin for error, you still got a really big number of people. And then also, Christianity right now is not just a new movement. It was 2,000 years ago that Jesus died and rose again. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to grasp just how long ago that was. Faith in Jesus has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, to generation to, oh, on and on and on and on for many, many, many years. And many of the Christians who have passed that down, they held firm while weathering some pretty choppy waters in society. So, faith in Jesus, it first started with a bunch of ragtag followers, some guys known as the Disciples. Jesus's first followers were convinced of his resurrection. And for us nowadays, one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is the eyewitness testimony of the disciples, the followers. And they were appointed to be what's known as apostles, and they launched the Christian movement. And those guys, they spent three years with Jesus, watching him live and teach. They were very familiar with his attitudes, his manner of speaking, maybe his just personal habits, you know, his attitude when he first woke up and got out of bed, because they just traveled together. They, they watched him very up close and personally. And in the end, they watched him die a horrible death as a criminal on a cross. After that, Jesus was confirmed to be dead by his Roman executioners. And in the Bible, in the book of Acts, it picks up after his death on the cross, and it says this, After he had suffered, this is what's amazing, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Tons of people saw Jesus alive. And what's more, these men refused to stop sharing the gospel, the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, which is another strong piece of evidence for the resurrection. Simon Peter was among the first to discover the fact of the resurrection. So, if we back up to the beginning of that Sunday morning and read the account from the Gospel of Luke, uh, where, where, that, where we're going to pick up it, there's uh, some women who had gone to the tomb first, and it says, "...on the first day of the week," which is Sunday, "...very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices that they had prepared," fully believing that he was dead, and they wanted to treat him, treat the body. So they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. And uh, it says this, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. So then, the next step, returning from the tomb, these women, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them, telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. So Peter, however, he, he got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only linen clothes. So he went away amazed at what happened. So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to many people. And among them, two disciples that were walking down a road. And after these two guys, they see Jesus, they ran back to tell the eleven. They said, they found the eleven, and those who were, who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon, and Peter. So, pretty amazing turn of events. It was astonishing to all of them. And every one of the eleven disciples who remained after Judas betrayed Jesus, built their lives around telling others about the resurrection and about the power of Christ. In fact, 10 out of the 11 died a martyr's death for their faith in Christ. The word martyr literally means witness. So they, these guys, they witnessed to the resurrection right up to their death. Peter was crucified, but he wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified the way that Jesus was. So this begs the question, who would die for a lie? The fact that these guys died and never recanted, it's one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection. These guys would know if it was a fake. The fact that they went to their death instead was compelling. It, it is compelling. And over the years, experts have studied this topic. One guy was Simon Greenleaf. He was a Jewish, uh, Jewish professor of law at Harvard. And in his day, he was considered to be the greatest authority in the United States on evidence in the courtroom. And so, he was challenged to apply the rules of evidence to the resurrection, and then he did. And then he became a follower of Christ. (laughs) And then many others, over time, have tried to disprove the resurrection and ended up giving their lives to follow Jesus and wrote books on it. Edmund Bennett was a dean of law at Boston University. The same thing happened to him as Greenleaf. Frank Morrison wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone, and the title of his first chapter is The Book That Refused to be Written because he started writing a book to disprove the resurrection, but he couldn't do it, so he decided to follow Christ. Josh McDowell was a law student who put in at least 700 hours of study to refute the resurrection, and he couldn't do it. And now he speaks about it all around the world. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist who tried to disprove Christianity. He couldn't do it, so he followed Christ, became a pastor, and now he speaks powerfully about the difference that Jesus makes. And uh, more recently, Jay Warner Wallace was an atheistic homicide detective. And he applied the rules of homicide investigations to the resurrection, and he determined that the testimony was real. So he went from atheist to Christian in his study. As a matter of fact, here is an amazing, here's a quick video from some of his findings that illustrate his background and and the influence. Uh, So listen to what he says here.
1: Sometimes people will ask me, well, how, how can you be sure that the disciples who either wrote scripture or who testified about Jesus in the first century weren't lying either about the resurrection or about the details of Jesus' life? Could this whole thing we call Christianity just be a fabrication, a lie on the part of the disciples? Well, I kind of have three answers for that and five answers to that. I'll give it to you quickly. The three is this. In all my work as a detective, I've learned that People only commit a murder for one of three reasons. That's it, and the same is true for lying, stealing. We only lie, steal, cheat, sin, commit murder for one of three reasons. These are the only three motives that drive bad behavior, you ready? It's not hard to figure out actually. One is financial greed. Two is sexual or relational lust. And three is the pursuit of power. So if we're gonna suggest that the disciples lied It would only be for one of those three reasons and ask yourself what did they get out of this in those three areas Did they get wealth did they get uh you know uh, uh, lots of girlfriends (laughs) did they get um, in a powerful position think about paul paul started off in a powerful position writes most of the new testament and ends up struggling through most he's chased all over the empire and ends up being suffering for his faith to do what to eventually go back and be in a position of power he started off with he could have stayed where he was and had power so in the end, I'm looking for motive and I don't see any motive for these folks to lie, but there's even more. The five, remember I told you about three and five. There are five things that are required for anyone to successfully pull off a conspiracy. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Here they are, smallest number of people who are conspiring together. Two people can lie, tell a secret, keep a secret more easily than, say, 22 or 222. Also, keep it for the smallest possible amount of time. Keeping a secret for a day is easier than keeping a secret for for a year. Also, great communication between co-conspirators. If I stop one of you and question you, you better be able to tell the other person what you told me so I can get the same data from the second person. Four, have good, strong family relationships because family members don't ever rat off on each other. They don't don't tell each other's secrets. And lastly, five, no pressure. If no one's applying pressure, don't worry about it. You're going to get away with it. Now ask yourself the question, were those five necessary requirements for a successful conspiracy available to the disciples? There's far too many of them. Remember, Paul says there's over 500 who saw the risen Christ on the same day who were available to the Corinthian church to be interviewed. Really? If you told me there's a conspiracy of 500 people, I would already say that's not reasonable. And then they're gonna hold it for how long? Over 60 years? Really? So 500 people keep this secret for 60 years. And then how do they communicate with each other to make sure the story stays the same when they've been separated all the way from India to Spain? Uh, Really. They're not Snapchatting each other in the first century, okay? So how are they keeping the secret together? And are there some family members? Yeah, there are some brother groups there. But Matthew is not related to anyone. He writes a gospel. What's in it for him? He was the tax collector called Levi, who wasn't even a disciple of John the Baptist, who then ends up holding on to this claim his entire life and then dies miserably as a result of it. And finally, do they, do they suffer you know, any kind of pressure? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, we know that the, m- many of these folks were martyred for their beliefs, and we have no record of anyone ever recanting their beliefs. So if you ask me, is it possible that they could have lied? Well, anything is possible, so I will typically say yes, but it is certainly not reasonable, and that's the standard beyond a reasonable doubt that I want to meet when I'm trying to decide if someone is lying to me.
0: From any of these experts that have studied this topic about the resurrection, you can find their books and resources to see what they discovered. And what many of them have concluded is the most compelling evidence for the resurrection is the testimony of the first disciples. They saw the crucifixion happen. They saw him alive afterward, and then they went to their death testifying about it. So today, I'm not sure where you were at in your journey of exploring evidence in support of the resurrection of Jesus. You might say that you're convinced already. Maybe that, you know, just like the first disciples, you're there. You believe it. You're, you're all in. And this gathering together on a Sunday morning or attending church or uh, tuning in with other Christians on, on Resurrection Sunday, that's, that's a normal and regular and important part of your life. And maybe you read your Bible on your own, and you start the day strengthened and eager to put some of what you learn from the Bible into practice. You're convinced. Maybe others of you here would describe yourself as curious. You're here, you're listening, you're exploring, and you're genuinely asking all of these Christians that go to these churches every Sunday, why would they do this weekly? (laughs) And why... Honestly, would I spend one of my only days off not sleeping in? If you don't have a great job, I was talking to one guy who's not crazy about his job, and he says he lives for the weekends. And uh, he's, he's one of the guys that comes every Sunday to church. Or maybe you'd ask, why would I pile everyone into the car and go to be with a bunch of strangers and listen to a message from some random speaker and listen to Christian songs? Maybe this whole church thing is the right thing to do, you may think. I'm not convinced yet. Or maybe you would describe yourself as a critic or you're critical. And you're here, but if you're honest, you'd rather not be. You know, the Easter thing, I'll do it once a year as a favor to somebody, and I'm just looking forward to that good meal that's coming up later today. A critic would say that this story is false. No one rose from the dead. It's just a fairy tale. And in the view of some, this fable is destroying humanity. It's just another organized religion. Or maybe one-fourth category is that you might be cynical. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but because of your previous bad experiences at church, you've written off being a part, an integrated part of a local church. In fact, I've had many conversations with people in this city, in this category, who... Uh, ran into some bad experiences, have some hurt or damage that was done in relationships or churches, and so they don't do the church thing anymore. You know, as you're listening, go ahead and, and just identify yourself. <laughs> which, which one is it for you when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to following Jesus and being a part of his local church? Are you convinced? Are you curious? Are you critical? Or are you cynical? Whatever category, I'm really glad that you're here. And I don't think it's a mistake that you've tuned in today. For each of you, this message series that we're starting today has something helpful. I think there'll be something helpful for you. So this series is called The Difference. And it's a message series. Next week, we're gonna look at this topic about godly guidance. And we're gonna see how positive change occurs in entire countries as God works through political leaders. You can see that in in the pages of history. The week after that, we'll look at global compassion and aid, where medicine and disaster relief has been spearheaded over and over by Christ followers. A lot of good has flowed into crisis situations. Um, On Mother's Day, we're going to look at the topic of raising inherent worth. Because throughout history, women have been treated best in countries that have the strongest Christian roots, and they've been treated the worst in places where it's been the most absent. We'll look at that. Um, On May 15th, the topic is removing racial barriers. The best work of valuing every human, regardless of race or ethnicity, has been done by Christ followers. And then we'll end with the topic of opposition, looking at really the growth of the church, even under the threat of persecution. You know, it may be that people get frustrated with, you know, quote, organized religion, and Christianity gets lumped into that pile. But we really want to show in this series how Christianity has been a major force for good. There's actually a lot of good in our world, in our country, in our lives right now that we take for granted that comes out of the Christian movement. We've put this series together to analyze the question, is the world better off, better or worse off because of Christianity? Because I will agree, there is a lot of brokenness in our world and in our lives. People might think that religion leads to problems, but the good news is that Jesus came to solve the problems. Jesus brings hope and he brings healing. God raised Jesus to life to change us and to change our world. So even if you question the worth of Christianity, you still might be longing for a more meaningful, more fulfilling life. And so I believe, it's no secret, I believe that Christianity has had an undeniable impact, even down to individual lives. And to illustrate that, I'd love for you to hear from one of the women in our church, sharing about her story and about the impact that it's had on her. So take a listen to this.
2: So I always felt that I had a a strong relationship with God and would always pray, but sometimes um, I couldn't really put a face to Him. Reading the Bible is what helped me understand who God really was. And um, really listening to the testimonies of my mother and other women who exerted that same light really made me want to learn more about God and um, I wanted to know what the difference was with uh, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible does say that He is the way to the Father. I really enjoy history and I feel that stories of the past are really powerful testimonies. So when my mother was telling me about Jesus Christ and how she came to him um, and was following him, um, she told me that I, I knew that the only way to really learn about what that was, was to look at the the facts of it, which was the Bible, which was the word of God. Um, and that's where the history of Jesus Christ and really the history of um, the whole, our whole world and humanity. So I was one of those people that couldn't understand how Jesus really made a difference because I felt so um, proud of my relationship with God and how I always felt Him close to me. Um, So I really didn't understand what difference Jesus made. I was battling um, uh, issues with forgiveness specifically. Uh, uh, relating to family, a family member um, and I wasn't even realizing that um, the la- that I wasn't fully forgiving. Coming to Christ the minute that it happened to me, I felt this sense of relief and I felt that I really had forgiven um, this family member and also just small details and friends from the past that I hadn't realized that I was holding on to. Um, so that was a really amazing feeling because I think Jesus is the only way to really be able to fully forgive it at such a capacity. Things that might seem silly, like, you know, being afraid of the dark or um having issues with sleep paralysis, um, you know, uh even nightmares that I feel like we can oftentimes overlook and just think that, oh, that's part of life to feel afraid of when those things happen to us. Um, and really coming to Christ uh, gave me a sense of security and protection that was stronger than, um, and more mature really than any other sort of uh, lack of fear regarding all of that that I had felt in the past. Honestly, I think the biggest difference that I saw was just I hadn't realized that there were guidelines to how God wanted me to live my life. I hadn't realized that I hadn't surrendered areas of my life to Him. The difference is that I felt a sense of peace um, that was constant and continuous and covered all aspects of my life. And that only happened um, when I realized that I had to surrender more and more. And I still realize daily that there are things that I have to surrender more and more of, and the more I do that, the more peace I feel because I let him be in control of those parts of my
0: life. So in the big ways of history and in the small ways of everyday life, resurrection power has changed the world. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we're in a hopeless state. In fact, the Bible captures this in a letter from the first century Christian leader and pioneer named Paul. And he wrote, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Paul was reminding people that this big event that we've been talking about today, the resurrection, is a game changer. And here's just another quick video to illustrate this and how really something that started a long time ago has spread in a phenomenal way. Check this out. Christianity is a movement, and it's been going strong for centuries. It's, it's gaining steam. And so I invite you to return next week so that you can consider how you might personally get involved in the movement. You can be a part right here of seeing families restored. Our church is focused, in part, on helping families grow, repair damage, because life is really messy, and helping people understand how to navigate the challenges that we all face. Also, you can get involved. Your collective involvement helps communities in our area get built up. When you serve here, when you give here, when you invest your time, it's beginning to make an impact in our community, especially as we team together with other like-minded ministries in our city. And finally, your engagement and participation with us helps to fuel life change. And maybe that's what you're longing for. Maybe you know that something in your life needs to be different. So, I invite you to join us. Come back next week, be a part of the movement, be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world and in throughout history. Here's some specific next steps you might take as we wrap up. Maybe you'd say I need to commit to Jesus Christ for the very first time. You might also say I need to come back and listen again so I can explore Christianity further. Or you might say What I need to do this week is to call out to God and ask him to reveal himself to me personally. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for raising Jesus from the dead so many years ago. And the way that 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 just was a, a big turning point. It was a hinge moment in history. And so much good has been brought to our world to combat the darkness and the evil and the struggle and to our just individual lives. We thank you for the good and the gracious, graciousness and your mercy. Would you help us to recognize truth for what it is, your truth? Help us to perceive through deception and lies and to really cling to what uh, you give us in this new life and hope in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for those listening online today, If you would like to support Valley Lights, you can give today. The money that we receive goes toward our mission of helping people find God and learn how to walk with Him. Giving to the church is a way to give back to God for the many ways that He provides for us. So you can donate by clicking the giving button on your screen right now or going to our website. Also, you can fill out a connection card. It only takes about a minute, but you can find the link on your screen as well. Uh, The connection card is a form that lets us know about anything going on in your life, things that you'd like to sign up for, events that are coming up, or ways that we can pray for you. I'm really glad that you are here today. I hope it's been helpful and encouraging. Thank you for taking some of your time to join us for Easter. Have a great week.